the we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pounds. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st Century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And as I promised 167 hours ago, we would return with another episode of A Different Perspective, and I truly am Kevin Randall. And for those of you who are interested in the Oak Island fiasco, the Oak Island uh, treasure dig, uh, there's a, a posting on my blog at uh, www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com that suggests an alternative to the treasure, and it was uh, proposed by Joe Steele, and I'm hoping to get her on the program at some point to talk about her theories about it, but you might want to take a look at that uh, posting about uh, Oak Island. I am joined today by the MUFON executive, executive director executive director and i do not know why i cannot pronounce why i cannot pronounce anything at the moment uh jan harzan he's the as i said executive director of mufon he's been a member of that organization a very long time and has worked at administration of mufon for many years his interest in ufos was inspired by his one sighting and that not only sparked an interest in ufos but his also his life work welcome jan Hey, thank you, Kevin. It's great to be here on your show. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm delighted to have you. And since you brought it up <laughs> in your in your bio that you had a UFO sighting, and we have uh, three and a half minutes before we have to take a break, tell me about your UFO sighting. Okay, well, yeah, it happened uh, in 1965. I was 10 years old at the time. <clears throat> and what, what happened was my brother and I had been studying this whole UFO phenomenon um, we've been reading about it in the newspapers, and we were interested in it. We had uh, come to the conclusion that these craft were using some kind of electromagnetic uh, uh, energy to do what they do, how they would fly. And so we had actually designed our own little craft, 30-foot craft with three pulsed electromagnetic engines in it, and we were going to build this in our backyard. So one day my mother went to the store, asked if we wanted to go with her. We did. We found a little book on the bookshelf. I believe it was the uh, uh, 
Flying Saucer Review. It was a half size from out of England uh, article, although I'm still looking back issues to see if I can find the one I actually looked at. But in that, when we're sitting in my brother's bedroom reading it, uh, it said that these UFO sightings occur around military bases, nuclear power plants, and places where anti-gravity research is being done. So we looked at each other and we said, well, heck, we're, we're doing anti-gravity research. Maybe you want to come here. So literally within about 30 days after that, my brother came into my room about 6.30 in the morning and woke me up and said, there's somebody outside trying to break into my bedroom. I said, what do you mean there's someone trying to break into your bedroom? He said, well, there's somebody at the window and they're, they're playing with the screen. And I said, well, did you look out to see who it was? He said, no, I didn't look out to see who it was. I said, well, let's go back and take a look. So I was at one end of the house. He was the other end of the house. We walked back to his room. We looked towards the window. There was no activity, no noise, no nothing. So we, I said, well, let's go out in the backyard and see what's going on. Now, this was uh, early or mid-April uh, of 2000, uh, 1965. And uh, it was right before the daylight savings times changed. So at 6.30 a.m. in the morning, it was actually quite light outside. The sun was already up. It, in fact, it was well above the horizon. It was bright outside. So we went down the hallway. Um, he actually saw something standing against the drapes. I won't talk about that right now. We went out into the garage. I noticed it was 6.30 in the morning on the clock on the wall. And we went out into the backyard. We walked to the end of the house, looked back, and there was nothing at the window. So at this point, I'm thinking to myself, well, he's just trying to pull one over on me, you know, get me out of bed at 6.30 in the morning and, and pull a spoof on me. So I said, well, there's nothing here. Let's go back. So we turned around to go back into the house. And as we got turned around, we were looking at this craft 30 feet from us, hovering 10 feet off the ground with four landing gear on it, making a humming noise like a uh, transformer on a telephone pole late at night. You ever that hum, the hum those uh, transformers make? And uh, we were just stunned. We were standing there looking at this thing. And my first reaction was, oh, my gosh, these things are real. And then in looking at it, I thought to myself, wow, this thing looks like it might be man-made, like we, we built it. And the reason I said that was because the craft, it was like a brick. If you took a brick and you blew it up to 8, 10 feet long by 4 feet wide by 3 feet high and completely smoothed all the edges, so it was like a, a tank. And then it was paint, it painted bright orange. It had blue corrugated landing gear coming out on both sides, four, four landing gear with black suction cups on the bottom. And then between the landing gear on each side, there were brown crossbars, almost like scissoring, like a scissoring function with a bolt in the middle of it where the scissors was. And uh, it was the bolt that I saw that made me think it was man-made because I thought, wow, that's really strange. There's a bolt there. But then I let, me, let, me, let me break in here because we're going to have to take a quick break. Uh, so we've got an orange object floating close to your house. Uh, you're stunned by it. We'll uh, examine that a little bit more when we come back uh, with a different perspective and my guest, Jan Harzon. Thank you. Network broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN TV. For more information on the X Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. 
Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the Exxon Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the Exxon Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere, 24-7-365. Foundation focusing on evidence based physical, mental, and spiritual interventions, including natural cancer cures, prayer, meditation, affirmations, nutrition, and other related holistic cancer prevention and cure modalities. These are used in cancer education, research, and financing care. I ask for your help to continue this important work by donating at www.holisticcancerfoundation.com. Hello, I'm Pete Marsh. With my daughter Justina, we will be presenting the new radio show, Too Good to Be True. If something seems too good to be true, it usually is. But with the help of Justina's amazing gifts, we're going to gain insight into questions that don't yet have complete answers. Have you wondered who built Stonehenge and for what reason? Why are crop circles found in the same region as Stonehenge and elsewhere? Are crop circles a hoax or are they created with technologies that we have little knowledge of? Who built the pyramids in Egypt and also in other countries? How and why were they built? Was the Titanic switched with the Britannic as part of a gigantic insurance fraud or for more insidious reasons? What caused the Tunguska event when trees were flattened over an 800 square mile area in Siberia? Will the new insights be too good to be true? Well, that will depend on what you are prepared to believe. Please join us as we start on this journey together. For more information on Too Good To Be True, visit www.xzbn.net. Little children aren't the only ones afraid of the dark. Millions of soldiers return from war zones with PTSD, anger, frustration, fear, and loneliness, much of which surfaces during the darkness of the night. You have the chance to change the lives of these American heroes. Songs and Stories for Soldiers.us provides free MP3 players for these men and women. With a list of 3 million songs in 16 different styles, 100,000 audiobooks, and 30,000 old-time radio programs, every veteran can find something to soothe and comfort them at no cost. All our players contain an 8-hour audio program designed to help veterans fall asleep. With 1,500-plus vets now participating, it's our goal to deliver 10,000 audio players this year. Go to our website at songsandstoriesforsoldiers.us. Help us help a veteran make it through the night.
And as they always say on various programs throughout the free world, we're back. I'm uh, joined with by John Harzan, and we were talking about his uh, UFO sighting, which doesn't sound too exciting given he's described. Thank you. You're welcome, sweetie. Have a good day. The demand for healthcare professionals who deliver both comfort and critical care is growing. FindNursingSchools.com connected me with an accelerated bachelor's of nursing degree program in my area with expanded capacity so I could complete the program in 16 months. Now I'm on the path to an in-demand career that offers job stability, flexible schedules, competitive pay, and the choice of where to work. Visit FindNursingSchools.com to begin your journey today. The we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pounds. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. Basically is a brick. We'll we'll run from there and let him continue. When we, when we left, uh, you were talking about having uh, rounded sides, uh, something like a tank. It was about 30 feet off the ground. I don't know. I don't remember if you said how far away it was. And uh, you had uh, corrugated landing gear. So take it from there. Yeah, actually, it was 30 feet away, 10 feet off the ground. But um, yeah, it was it was it was some kind of a landing craft that was literally I wouldn't even say it was floating. It was frozen in the sky. It wasn't moving an inch. It was just standing there uh, very, very still. So I'm looking at this craft trying to figure out what's going on. And I'm observing that there's a bolt in the center of the scissoring mechanism between the two landing gear. And that made me think it might be man-made. But then I started studying the craft closer, and I noticed that there was not a seam or rivet in the entire craft. It was like one piece of blown metal, uh, almost like it was blown like glass. Um, And I thought to myself, well, how the heck do these guys get in and out of this? Because there's no doors, there's no windows. It's just a metal tank. And at, at that point... I said to my brother, I'm going to go in and get a camera, and I'll be right back. I ran into the garage, where, uh, which was where we came out of, and, and then from the garage to go back into the house, we had locked ourselves out. So I'm pounding on the door. Now, at 6.30 in the morning, nobody was up in the house. They were all in bed. Um, so it took me a minute or two pounding on this door before my brother, older brother opened the door and let me in. I ran to the closet, grabbed the camera, ran back out. By the time I got outside, my brother was standing on top of our swing set, looking off to the west, and the craft was gone. So I said to him, well, what happened? And he said, well, it just hovered there for a second, just frozen, and then it started to slowly drift away, and then it just shot off over the horizon. It just disappeared. So uh, it, that, that's, that's the whole case. That's the whole point. So, so this craft was in our backyard. It was hovering off the ground, and then all of a sudden it just took off and flew away. So I hadn't... Uh, Told anybody, we, you know, I was 10 at the time, he was nine. We decided, we talked about it, and we decided, you know, who's going to believe us if we tell them we saw this thing? Um, so we didn't tell our parents for a number of years until a number of years later that this had actually happened. But for me, it impressed upon me that there's other people out there, or if not other people, there's us with advanced technology, uh, which is quite far advanced from what we've got today in terms of aircraft, helicopters, and things of that nature. So um, it kind of inspired me to go on and do do a technical career and try to figure out how these things work. For my brother, it had quite a different effect on him. It actually took him kind of in a downward spiral. So I see that people who have these experiences uh, go down usually one of two paths. Either it's a positive thing for them or it's a very negative thing for them. Well, you have to understand, I mean, that's pretty um, unbelievable. The story's unbelievable. I mean, the things hovering in your backyard, 
Yep. And and uh, one of the first thoughts I had, I was going to ask you, did you run in the house to get a camera, which you've covered uh, there? But I mean, it's a, a pretty unbelievable story that something would be that close to you. Were you out in the country? Were you uh, in the middle of the city? No. Well, I mean, w- this was 1965, Thousand Oaks, California. There's probably, you know, 50,000 people in that particular town at that time. I mean, it's, it's hundreds of thousands of now. You've got Westlake Village and the Gura Hills and things that have grown up since then. But where uh, was your house situated? Was it kind of out by itself? I mean, was it, or was it in a, like a neighborhood? No, no, we were in a neighborhood. We were in a neighborhood. It, were, it was kind of a rural kind of a neighborhood, but we were in a neighborhood. There were there were houses on each side of us, and there were houses across the street. Um, but again, this was 6.30 in the morning, so um, there's not a lot of people up on a Saturday morning at 6.30. Um, well, that's true, <laughs> too. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, we, we saw what we saw. I mean, the... My brother was there with me. He he, he observed the same thing. Um, you know, I you know Bill McDonald, uh, a good friend of mine, artist in the UFO field, and and Bill's father used to be the vice president of research for the Rockwell Science Center, which was located in Thousand Oaks. And so when I told him the story, and he went into it in some great detail, I was very interested in it. He said, "Well, Jan, this is probably something my father built." And I said, "Well, it's possible that Rockwell built this thing," but I said. Bill, let me ask you a question. Why would they be flying it in my backyard at 6.30 in the morning on a Saturday? That doesn't make any sense to me. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly open to the possibility that this was a man-made craft. question is, if we had this technology back in 1965, where is it today? We're not seeing it 50 years later. Well, I, that was going to be my, my next point, was that if it's something that Rockwell built, that we would have, other people would have seen it by now. Uh, even the the B-1 bomber, or yeah, the, the B-2 bomber and the... Uh, uh, well, well, Rockwell, yeah, Rockwell built the B-1 bomber. Yes, I was I was going to say that. But the uh, F-117, I mean, these were very uh, advanced craft, and yet they, they being the government, the Air Force revealed them to the world uh, at some point. Uh, so this sounds like something that if Rockwell had it, they would have revealed it by now, and our technology would be completely different. I mean, you know, it's... One of those things, and and the other thing I I often think about if you've uh, if you've seen something like this, um, you know I can't come and tell you, hey, you didn't see this. It was a hallucin- uh, hallucination. I was thinking illusion, got illusion and hallucination mixed up there. So it's you know kind of hard to refute what you're saying, other than it's sing- well dual witness, but uh, by two youngsters. So yeah. Well, uh, it could be a hallucination. A hallucination. <laughs> or a hallucination, whatever the yeah. guy in Michigan Something. said in 66. Yeah. Um, I was wondering, you know, um, MUFON, let's, let's talk a bit, a bit about MUFON. It's an international organization. Can you tell me a little bit about what it, where, where all it is active in the world? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, MUFON has been in business since 1969 uh, when it was founded by uh, six gentlemen in the Midwest, including uh, uh, John Schusler, uh, a number of other folks. But we're a 501c3 nonprofit. Um, we have we operate in 43 countries in the world and all 50 states. Uh, we have a, just a little under 4,000 members currently and growing. And um, you know, basically, we're an all-volunteer outfit. I mean, there's like two paid employees in the entire organization and everything else is strictly done by volunteers, which is a totally amazing to me that we get as much done as we do. Do uh, the paid employees, that would be the director and the editor of the Move On Journal? Uh, actually, it's the director and the office manager who manages all the things. The, the uh, editor of the journal is a contract employee, so he gets paid uh, to produce that journal. 
that that's a contractor. He's not a member of MUFON. He's a member of MUFON, but I mean, but but he's a paid contractor. He's not an employee of MUFON. He's a contractor to MUFON. So we're splitting a fine hair here. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, yeah. I mean, there's like four people who get paid in MUFON, and it's the international director, the office manager, the editor of the journal, and we have a part-time gal here at the office who helps out. Uh, can we define the role a little bit better than just helps out just for clarity? Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, so we have 4,000 members. I mean, obviously they, they're calling the office and needing information, helping to re-up their memberships. Uh, uh, there's people buying things through our store. That stuff needs to get shipped out. Um, that's okay. the kind of things. Yeah. So she's kind of a secretary, uh, yeah. girl Friday type office. thing, yeah. assistant. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that strikes me, and you might be the one of the best people to ask, is if I wanted to see a UFO, and you kind of brought it up with your with your story there. Uh, in today's world, uh, what are some of the UFO hotspots? Well, I mean, the, the the classic ones, of course, are the San Luis Valley up in Colorado, where there's always a lot of activity up in that uh, Four Corners area. There, um, you know, Missouri seems to have a lot of nocturnal lights and other activity going on all the time. We get some very strange reports out of Missouri, um, pretty much anywhere, everywhere. The the two states that are the biggest in terms of per capita sightings is Arizona and Maine. Of interest, uh, particularly of interest to me, is Maine because. It's way up there in the Northeast um, and probably under not such good weather most of the time. But uh, on a per capita basis, we get more reports out of those two locations than any other. And um, you were talking about the, uh, uh, the time of day to see them, that sort of thing. You were talking about it, but I mean, what time of day would you? Uh... Oh, usually it's after 9 p.m. at night, you know, between 9 and two in the morning in that time frame. That's, and I think that's probably because if they're in the sky and they're bright colored uh, daytime, it's harder to discern that than it is at nighttime when it's dark and you can see the, the lights or the actual uh, activity easier. Well, and you talked about Missouri and nocturnal lights, but a nocturnal light is basically a light in the sky or a light in the ground, uh, some glowing thing that you can't readily identify, but that's not necessarily some kind of an alien craft, is it? No, no. Well, I, mean, I don't know. I mean, we, we, all we know is these lights appear. Um, if you remember the Phoenix lights, uh, they were, what, seven or eight lights that appeared across the sky and then disappeared. Uh, some people claimed to have seen from underneath that it was a structured craft. But uh, we, we actually see these lights forming in different locations. I mean, we had some a few years ago, uh, about two years ago in Salt Lake City. Um, I've seen this same phenomenon in Missouri. Um, it, we, we get these reports on occasion where all of a sudden these lights will wink on uh, two or three or four or five of them and then uh, over time burn out. Now, obviously, you've got to check and make sure it's not Chinese lanterns. It's not other types of things. But these are typically craft that are moving across the sky um, in, a, in a fast enough fashion that they could not be and in a in a structured way so that they, they're attached to a structure. So they're not Chinese lanterns. I mean, we, we know what Chinese lanterns look like. We know how they behave. Um, and we can pretty much tell in video that we get whether it's a Chinese lantern we're observing or Chinese lanterns. We're, you know, the ones I always get are that, that, that there was a, a UFO flotilla. And they'll send us a picture of 100, you know, bright lights in the sky. And typically that's some kind of a wedding where they let go 100 Chinese lanterns to celebrate the wedding. Perhaps a Chinese wedding. I don't know. 
But well, I know, I know. A number of years ago, I investigated the spook light in Joplin, Missouri, uh, with Robert yes. Cornett and some other people. We yes. were able to identify the light. We know exactly what it was, and it wasn't anything alien. It wasn't anything really mysterious. And, and the the explanation had actually been published in the newspaper a number of times, but people just simply refused to believe it. And yeah. they would say things like, "Well, we can't. You can't photograph it." I've got lots of photographs of it. I was able to photograph it easily when when we were there, uh, right. and, and that sort of thing. And you know, when you're talking about Southern Missouri, I know Ted Phillips spent some time in Southern Missouri um, a number of years ago chasing lights around the, 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 the landscape. I don't think he ever came up with a plausible explanation for what was causing him, but I don't think he was really looking at them as some sort of alien craft. Yeah, well, think, think about the lights in Norway, the Heslin lights. I mean, the, you know, it's uh, they've had instrumentation on that phenomenon for a number of years, and yet um, they still haven't figured out what the heck it is. <laughs> but, but, but we know that these lights do exist, and they do. The we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pounds. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. The future will be amazing. And that's all well and good. But what about today? You can feel the rush of a 400 horsepower Nissan Z. Or climb to new heights in the all-terrain Nissan Frontier. Light up the road in the all-electric Nissan Aria that feels like a sci-fi dream come true. The future will be great, but today is made for thrill. All you have to do is get in a Nissan and drive. 2023 Aria and Z not yet available for purchase. Expected availability is this spring for 2023 Z and this fall for 2023 Aria. Turn on all over the world and people do observe them. The question is, what are they? Well, in, in Missouri, what it was is the refraction of headlights from cars on a stretch of highway that you okay. look down the road and you couldn't see the car, but you could see a refraction of the headlight. And we chased, we chased the thing down and there were a number of experiments conducted. One of the high school students had done, done experiments where he put colored lenses, colored uh, material over the headlights of cars and flashed signals and back and forth. So they were able to identify exactly what they were. So that, that was pretty well identified. But I know the... Um, the the Marfa lights, for example, I don't think have ever been properly identified. So yeah. there are strange lights out there, but that's not necessarily uh, alien phenomenon. We're gonna yeah, have we... to take we're gonna have to take the uh, the next break here. Okay. Uh, if you're interested, I will have stuff up on the um, blog www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com in the next couple of days, giving a little bit more information and maybe some places that you can look to learn more about what we've been talking about here. And as I say frequently, for those of you who are interested, if you're looking for uh, analysis of the Roswell case, take a look at Roswell in the 21st Century, uh, which is available at Amazon.com as an ebook, or you can order a, a hardback copy of the thing. But uh, it's, it's, it's a, a book will tell you what you need to know. We will return right after this uh, with more with John, Jan Har, Harzan. Perfect. Dreams are our personal gateways into infinite wisdom. Don't miss Shamanic Counselor and Indigenously Trained Dream Decoder, Sandra Corcoran's inspiring book, Shamanic Awakening Between the Dark and the Daylight. This remarkable work chronicles Sandra's 35 years of experience with diverse wisdom keepers and her initiations throughout the Americas and across the British Isles, Turkey, Greece, and Egypt. Sandy's knowledge of symbology, psychology, and myth influenced her dream blog and workshops. 
Sandy offers private tarot readings, international journeys, a meditative CD, as well as her book, Shamanic Awakening, to encourage you as you navigate this earthwalk, creating a deeper connection to yourself and all that is. Find this and more at Sandy's website, starwalkervisions.com. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. How would you like to be able to read other people's minds? Well, the next best thing is here. When you know how to read a person's name, you know how the person thinks, feels, and behaves. Each letter in our name holds a key to unlock our true essence. Our name contains both our gifts and challenges in this lifetime. Nemology Science discovers personality secrets hidden in the placement of the letters of our names, including the first and last impression people remember about us. Sharon shows us how to interpret the arrangement of letters as outlined in her book, Know the Name, Know the Person. Sharon Lynn Wyeth created Nemology Science after 18 years of research and testing her theories and has supported thousands of people around the world in understanding themselves and others better. You'll enjoy Sharon's unique teachings as she shares her system to learn the gifts behind your given birth name. Even if you don't like your birth name, there are jewels in this book. If you're thinking of changing your name, ready to name your child, or wanting to get along better with others, this is the book for you. If you'd like to improve your relationships and change your life for the better, get the book today. Know the name, know the person. Or visit www.knowthename.com. That's www.knowthename.com. Hello, I'm Justina Marsh, and with my dad, Pete, we are going to present a new show called Too Good to Be True. Together, we are aiming to discover more truths about this world and beyond. Do you have unanswered questions about the world? Do you ever wonder about aliens, conspiracy theories, or the universe? There are many shows discussing subjects such as pyramids or UFOs, but we want to relay this information based on our own research, including from spiritual means. Hopefully, listeners will be helped with their own beliefs and will appreciate the psychic insights that add to the previous research and information. We both look forward to sharing this insight and beginning this journey with our listeners. Visit xzbn.net for more information about when to listen. I am joined by Jan Harzan, who is the executive director of MUFON. And for those of you who wish more information about MUFON, I guess the website, you can basically type MUFON into your search engine or MUFON.com, and it'll take you to the website. You can learn about the organization and that sort of thing. Um, 
when we went away, we were talking a little bit about nocturnal lights, but I think we've pretty well exhausted that topic, uh, given that there's these sorts of sightings all over the place, and there's really no good explanation for some of them, and many of them are, are explainable, but nocturnal lights do not really mean structured craft. So um, how many of the sightings that you get reported in the course of a year where they're talking about real structured craft? And, and what do those craft look like? Well, so um, I don't know the exact percentage that are actually considered structured craft, but I would suppose it's about 60% of what we get on our database, um, just as a, as a general rule. And uh, some of the well, better let me, cases... Let, well, yeah. let me ask you, let me break in and ask you, the 60% you're talking about, not 60% of the sightings, but 60% of those that are unidentified when you're done investigating. Would that be correct? Correct. That's correct. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the, probably one of the most exciting cases we've had in probably over 30 years, in my opinion, was case number 74282, which was uh, reported by a gentleman who was a defense contractor on a bear hunting trip up in Canada back in 2013. Now, he didn't report this to us until last year, but because um, he, he didn't quite frankly know where to go with it. But it was a 170-foot dumbbell, or bar, I call it barbell-shaped craft with a ball at each end and a midsection, uh, hovering about 400 feet away from them uh, in the middle of nowhere, literally up northern Ontario, Canada, uh, out in the forest. And it had a completely smooth surface to it, almost uh, glass-like, uh, with an AC arcing current all over the surface, uh, going all over the surface. Now, uh, he was able to capture this on his video camera. Uh, also, um, well, on his video camera, but he, when he first saw the craft and he tried to videotape it, the camera wouldn't turn on, and his cell phone was was gone. It was not working either, so he couldn't get photos of it. As the craft moved about a quarter of a mile away, about a thousand feet away from them, his camera, his Sony cam, came back on, and he was able to get it on videotape. Now, when they got back to the camp, they started playing the video back. The image of the craft was not on the video, but what was on the video was all of the electromagnetic signature of the craft. So he's been taking that and analyzing it and determined that this appears to be a craft that was using two counter-rotating super electromagnets in each end of the craft, uh, spinning and then pulsing at 123 hertz uh, between them. So whether this was our craft or, or, or some kind of a you know ex extraterrestrial craft, we don't know. He, he believes it was extraterrestrial mainly because for two reasons. One is because he works in the defense industry and he builds non-lethal weapons for the CIA and for the military. He went to some of his intelligence counterparts, uh, people he worked with, and asked them if they knew anything about this craft. And they said they didn't have any knowledge of it. He asked his military contacts. They said they had no knowledge of it. Uh, he asked them if it was a problem for him to talk about it. And they said, absolutely not. You can talk about it. Uh, but he believes it's extraterrestrial not only for that reason, but also because... The craft was completely smooth. Now, compare this to what I told you about my sighting in 1965. There were no seams or rivets in it. It was like it was almost manufactured as a single piece of metal. Um, well, let me let me break in here because I, I wanted uh, you know I I spent time in intelligence. I spent time in the military, and if you'd come to me and ask those questions, even if I'd known something about it, I'd have told you no. Right, but you class, might have, a classified project. Right, but you might have also said you shouldn't talk about it. Right. Not necessarily. Okay. I might have said, I just know nothing about it. 
And, and in fact, when I was uh, intelligence officer in Kansas City at Richards Gebauer Air Force Base, I got a call from a reporter and he was checking on a story that he'd heard, not UFO related, I might put in real quick here, not UFO related, but he was asking me questions about it. I said, I haven't heard about it. I don't know what you're talking about. And he called me all sorts of names and finally got mad and hung up. I knew exactly what he was talking about, I'd, but I'd gotten it through classified sources. So yeah. I couldn't say anything I said would confirm some aspect of his story. And as an intelligence officer, I just couldn't do that. So right. the fact that he asked his intelligence buddies or, or friends or people he knew in the intelligence community, and they said they knew nothing about it, may be that they did know something about it, but they, because of uh, the source of their knowledge, they just couldn't admit to it in any way, shape, or form, in any way uh, at all. And that's why the CIA is often saying, you know, I can neither confirm nor deny what you're asking me. Um, I just, the, the right. easiest thing you do is just say, I don't know anything about that uh, and, and right. let it go at well, that. Well, let's, let's, just, let's say that it was our technology that was being tested, or, or Canada's. I don't know why we would be testing our technology in the middle of Canada, but perhaps we were. Um, one of the things we, he did observe. You, you know, those Canadians are very smart people. Well, it's our, 51st, it's our 51st state, right? I am not going to comment on that. <laughs> I will let that go. Anyhow, uh, you were saying before I so rudely interrupted you. Well, I was saying that um, he observed the craft. He, you know, he and his two uh, buddies who were bear hunting with him um, go instantaneously almost from, from a spot where it was out to a mountain range and then back. Uh, and based on the distance it went and the speed it went, he, he calculated the uh, speed was several thousand miles per hour. Um, I don't have the figure right in front of me right now, but it was it was like fifteen thousand miles an hour. It was it was a very fast speed. So, but, well, the, the, let me let me break in here because something popped into my brain, which is you said that he tried to videotape this thing on his cell phone. I guess his. In- Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and in inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and in inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonabello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. With no fees or minimums and no overdraft fees, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Charles Barkley in a pickup game. We'll take Barkley. Ha! First pick. Sorry, kids. Yep, even easier than that. With no fees or minimums and no overdraft fees, is it even a decision? Okay, here's the plan. Pass me the ball every time. This is banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC. And I'm well, not, not, not complaining about cell phone cameras because some of them are really spectacular. But you said nothing, there was no image on the, um, on the cell phone once he went back to review the video? Well, his phone wouldn't, wouldn't work. It had been shut off, so, and so had his camera. But his camera came back on. So the video was captured actually on a, on a Sony video cam. Um, and, yes, uh, this is all on our website. You can check it out and look at the videotape. 
but all that was left on it, there was no image. There was only the the, the pulses of the electromagnetic uh, radiation coming off the craft. And so he could see the, the peaks in the valleys of this thing as, as it was oscillating uh, across the screen. And he, he he's an audio engineer. That's what he does for, for part of what he does for the military and the intelligence community. So he has analyzed that and determined the frequency and everything else that this thing was working at. And based on the information he's getting, he thinks they can figure out how to back engineer the actual craft. But the real point is he doesn't have any really good evidence that there was a craft in the sky. Well, I mean, you've got you've got the videotape before the craft showed up and you've got the videotape after the craft showed up. And there and there's a marked difference in what was showing up on the video camera in terms of the uh, these pulsed waves. In other words, beforehand, there was there, the wave. The waveform was different. When the craft showed up, the waveform started jumping up and down and oscillating at a specific frequency. So yes, there is, there is physical evidence that there was something in the vicinity of this camera, but not necessarily the object he described. Well, there are three witnesses who saw the exact same object, so I guess we could call them all liars. No, I'm not saying that they're liars or anything like that. I'm merely saying that when you get down to these sorts of things, you've got three guys who are together. They see a craft. They attempt to videotape it. But when we're done, all we have basically is some electromagnetic uh, problems with the video um, from the video camera and three guys that saw an object. We don't have uh, good photographs of it. We don't have other other evidence to go with it. So we have an interesting case, but we really don't have the kind of evidence that would uh, be extraordinary. Yeah. So, so Kevin, let me ask you, what's your feeling? There, there are no such thing as flying saucers from someplace else? Didn't say that. Merely asking questions to make sure that we understand exactly what we're talking about here. Yeah. You know, because I think it's well, important that we understand these sorts of things. And oftentimes when we get into these discussions, um, people are saying, well, here's evidence. And when you when you push them for evidence, you find out that, well, there's something I can't talk about or there's something that um, is hidden by by somebody else or the government or uh, people won't name. They won't name names. They can't name names. We don't have names to verify that sort of thing. And I think that if we're going to investigate UFOs, we have to look at all of that sort of thing. And all I'm asking here is to, to, to clarify that we have videotape. There is some distortion to the videotape, but the object that is described um, isn't on the, on the videotape. Well, it's not distortion. It's actually uh, waveforms that are very pronounced and very regular. So there's something putting off an electromagnetic signature from whatever it was that they saw that, that put these waveforms on that tape. Now, he's working with some scientists from Germany to see if they can shift, phase shift those waveforms back to the point where an actual image will show up. Uh, and that would be uh, very exciting if we could make that happen. Well, and that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. You're going through the steps to attempt to find out what is on the tape or on the, the video. So Correct. if Correct. Uh, if if you were to, say, email me the video and I looked at it, I would not see a craft on on the video at this point. But attempts are made to clarify that sort of thing on the from the camera. Right. That's and, and on on the MUFON website, are the guys identified by name? Um, he's he's called witness. He doesn't. He's the CEO of this company, and, and he he has major contracts with the military. Uh, but we have met with him in person 
uh, both the uh, director of research for MUFON, Robert Powell, as well as the field investigator on the case, Phil Leach, out of Indiana. And uh, they've been to his home. They've seen his laboratory. They've uh, met his some of his employees. And uh, uh, we, we know he's a real guy, and he's he, he had a real experience. And he's been very forthright in sharing everything with us in terms of the research that he's personally doing on this subject, and he's very driven. I had the opportunity just as a to, uh, to present this case to a number of scientists at a recent uh, Space Studies Institute uh, advanced propulsion workshop at Estes Park up in Colorado, and uh, a number of them were very very interested by the case. They're basically these are scientists who are trying to figure out how to get us as a civilization to interstellar travels. So they are working on a number of different engines, the EM drive, mock effect, a couple of different uh, ways to do that. Um, at least two of them have taken this upon themselves to go look into this and uh, study the information to see if there's anything that might uh, be to this. And are any of these scientists identified? Yeah, uh, Martin Tegmar out of the uh, University of Dresden in Germany. And uh, uh, yeah. Exactly. I mean, you can you can go on the SS you can go on the SSI website SSI.org, and just click on Advanced Propulsion Workshop. You'll see a picture of whoever was available at the time to take a picture of. I'm the third person from the left, and you'll see all the other scientists and engineers there. I think they're identified by name on the photograph. And then all but, the lectures took place over four days are on the same website. You can actually watch the videotapes of the people's lectures. But this was this was about. Per- our attempts to create, I guess, interstellar drive as opposed to uh, a conference to kind of decode what is on the, the videotape taken by the scientists in Canada. Oh, no, absolutely. Yeah, no, this, the, the, the workshop I'm talking about is a bunch of scientists who are, have the same goal, which is to figure out a way to get us to interstellar travel. That's correct. Which but, I think but, is a fine idea. Yeah, I I'm, do all, I'm all for interstellar travel. Uh, I am too. Especially after all the science fiction I've read and all the science fiction shows I've watched. We're going to have to take a quick break here, the last one before our final segment. I'm talking with Jan Harzan, who is the executive director of MUFON. We're talking about some of the uh, UFO sightings they've been involved with, some of the things that are going on in that organization, and as you see, some of the uh, interesting sightings and evidence that they've been collecting. And as I say, we'll have more about this on my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. Go to the MUFON website if you want to look up at some of the information on the case we were just discussing. It was case number 74282. And it happened, uh, I guess, in 2013. So take a look at the MUFON website. We will return right after this. Hi, everyone. Rob McConnell here, and I wanted to spend a moment on Internet streaming. Everybody has heard about Internet streaming, but not many know much about it. Did you know the internet streams just about everything? Movies. From new releases to old classics. TV shows. Almost every show, every episode, and much more. But the question has always been, how do you do it? 
Well, now, thanks to the folks at 123ReadyTV, I have the answer for you. They have developed a simple program app, 123ReadyTV, that you install on your Windows PC, Android smartphone, or Android tablet that can have you streaming like a pro in less than five minutes. You truly won't believe how much is available or how easy it is to do until you try. And for a one-time cost of only $19.99, this product is a real winner. To learn more about 123 Ready TV, visit our website at www.xzbn.net. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the X-Zone Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the Exxon Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember, 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere, 24-7-365. True healing must address four levels, physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual, for us to live joyful and productive lives. We tend to treat three of the four, leaving the spiritual languishing. If you're tired of the same dysfunctional patterns cropping up in your life, Soul Balancing is for you. Trixie Phelps, owner and founder of Soul Balancing, is a naturally gifted energy healer trained in numerous esoteric forms, including shamanism. Trixie has created a powerful modality that safely and effectively clears your energetic field. A Soul Balancing session can remove interference, heal trauma, and restore your hope. Contact Trixie for a life-changing long-distance session today, www.soulbalancing.world. There's a legend shared by many indigenous cultures of a time when the nations were cast to the four corners of the world. Each nation was given a body of sacred knowledge that held a different portion of the truth to preserve. True reality could not be known until all the nations reunited, combining the information. If a single one was missing, the world could not be reborn and darkness would prevail. The Science of Magic Radio is dedicated to reuniting the sacred knowledge. With the understanding, none of us has all the answers, but together we can open new perceptions and possibilities. Through our combined vision, the world can be reborn into a place where darkness no longer prevails. 
Join me, Gwilda Wiecka, and the Science of Magic daily on the Exxon Broadcast Network, xzbn.net, or visit... Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonabello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. It's at thescienceofmagic.net. Once again, we have returned. I'm joined by Jan Harzon, who is the executive director of MUFON, and I'm uh, questioning him about UFOs and that sort of thing and what MUFON is doing. And in that, um, in the, in the, in that light, uh, MUFON was involved with a program called Hangar One, which right. I think, which I think didn't get <laughs> a lot of critical reviews. Um, why, uh, why would MUFON be involved in that program? Okay, well, for two reasons. One is that uh, uh, we were approached by uh, a production company, uh, oh gosh, going back five years ago now. Um, actually, we were, produ- we were approached by like five different production companies to uh, put a show on with using MUFON data and stuff from our files. Uh, we uh, ended up selecting one, which ended up selling the show to, to History Channel. And the goal of the whole show was really twofold. One was to uh, educate the public on the fact that UFOs are real, that they're still happening today. I can't tell you how many people stop me and ask me, oh, gee, UFOs, I, I haven't heard anything lately. Is there anything even going on remotely? Well, we get 500 to 1,000 cases a month uh, reported to us. Now, not all of those are spacecraft from Zeta Reticuli, but there is activity current. And so we wanted to make that aware, the public aware of the fact that these things are real. Uh, there's structured devices operating in and around our planet. Uh, and for that, we were, I think, highly successful in getting that word out. The second was is that most people don't know what MUFON is. They, they, uh, MUFON sounds like something a cow is doing, like move on, move on. Uh, so we wanted to kind of get the brand name uh, more recognizable among people who might have had an experience that they wanted to report. Um, and during the time the show was on the air, we tripled the number of sighting reports coming to us from the 500 to 1,000. We went up to over 1,500 sighting reports each month. Um, a lot of those were historical from people uh, sharing stuff from the past. Uh, the show at its peak had uh, about 1.5 million viewers, so we were definitely hitting a lot of the public on this uh, from this using the show. And then the, the other thing was our membership grew by 50 percent, uh, which which was a huge benefit to move on to have uh, the additional members. So but what we, about the what about some of the content? Some of the content was a little bit shaky. Well, the the season one uh, was underway before I even actually came on board. Um, so what we did in the season two was we tried to, we brought the show back to just strictly out of our files and uh, 
we put a team review team around it. But the thing you have to understand, Kevin, about TV shows, they're not, they're not, a do, it's not a, television is not a documentary medium. Film is a documentary medium. Television is about giving people snippets of information. So um, if there's one critique I'd have for the show was we tried to take a scene and then we put too many segments to it. So we'd say, okay, we're going to do underwater UFOs. And then we would have six or seven cases we cover. Well, in a, in a 45 minute, which is what you get for an hour, because you got to throw in all the commercials, 45 minutes a second, you're only doing five minutes or six minutes on each sighting. So you can't do detailed documentary level uh, information on it. And I think that was the one critique we had from those who were real hardcore UFO researchers was uh, they, they wanted more meat to it. They wanted to yeah. The general public loved the show. I mean, I would say far away, people thought it was wonderful. I, get, I can still get accolades today on well, I guess what I'm kind of suggesting here is that um, I look at it from the, from the point of a researcher, of course, right. that that yeah. some of the information was a little bit um, uh, shaky. I guess is the best word to put it, and and I just kind of wondered about about that, and and it opened with the big uh, the hangar with all the files in it. Does that place really exist? Yeah, that's funny. Uh, you know, when the show first. <laughs> Clifford Clift, who was the executive director back in the 2008 to 2011 timeframe, uh, actually was the one who got first approached by these uh, production companies. And by the time we got one selected and they got a show sold, which took several years, um, it was David McDonald, who was then the international director. Uh, and his offices were in Cincinnati, Ohio, at the Lincoln Airport. And he used to store all of the uh, files for MUFON in his hangar. When the film crew came out, David go to MUFON headquarters, which at the time was in uh, Lincoln Airport in Cincinnati, um, they asked him, Dave, so where are, the, where are all the MUFON files? He said, well, they're over there. And he pointed across the field and hang, said, over there at Hangar 1. He said, oh, well, that'd make a great name for the show. So that's it's a real place, and it's really where the files were stored, and it's uh, what they named the show out. But they've, they've moved the files from there since that time? Yeah, well, when I took over in 2013 or 14, I mean, we, we moved most of the files. There are still files in that stored in there, but they're older. They're not the, they're not the citing reporting files. Those have been moved out, and they're actually kept uh, stored right now in Iron Mountain. Okay. And uh, you mentioned Zeta Reticuli, and I just wanted to point out that that was the system that the alien came from in the movie Alien. <laughs> okay. I just use that as a term because – Well, I know, but but I'm just saying I'm just saying if you've watched the movie Alien um, and they, yes. they think they've reached our system and then it's, it's, it's Zeta Reticuli, and I've always thought that was kind of an interesting uh, coincidence, but, I guess, yes. uh, about that. Um, in talking to some of your, and I'll say ex-state uh, directors, one of them was suggesting that uh, MUFON had been infiltrated by a whole bunch of um, government – Government agents, uh, intelligence agents. Um, what what is your take on that? Well, you know, this is this is this has been the the, the, the thing for a number of years, and I, I mean, what I tell people is, look, there's two employees, myself and Marquetta. Neither of us have been in the military. Neither of us have an intelligence background. So we're the two employees. Now, uh, could a state director uh, be a former uh, CIA agent, NSA agent, or something of that nature? We we. Volunteers are volunteers. They can do everything no, they want. No, 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 no. You're missing the point here. His okay. suggestion was, and and going in, in California at one point, we were going to be on a TV program. I say we. It was Russ Estes, Carl Flock, and me. We're riding in the same car to mm -hmm. the um, to the TV store to talk about UFOs, TV studio. 
And uh, all of us had an intelligence background. Carl Flock had been with the CIA. I had been in Air Force Intelligence, later Army Intelligence, and Russ Estes had been with the ASA. Russ Estes had been with the ASA. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean we've infiltrated the organization. And what the suggestion was, the organization had been infiltrated by government agents or intelligence agents to report on its activities. And that's what I'm wondering if uh, you think that's true. Well, I, I have no idea. I mean, to me, uh, and this was an argument I had with a former executive director when I was on the board, was, uh, you know, to me, if the CIA wants access to any – Look at WikiLeaks. I mean, if they can get Hillary Clinton's deleted emails and publish them publicly, I think it's possible for anybody to get anything on the Internet and and, and have it. So um, I don't know what the infiltration thing would be about, because honestly, when reports come into us, we just put them right back out to the public. Our case management system that people report a UFO sighting on, as soon as that stuff comes in and they hit the submit button, it is published to the world. I think I think the suggestion was that for some reason the intelligence community has a great deal of interest in um, UFOs. Oh, I think so. Yeah, and and I one of the ways they were gathering the information was infiltrating the organization. And I just wondered what your thoughts were on that, because uh, I find it a little bit hard to believe that the intelligence agencies would be would need to do that. I guess is what I'm saying. Well, because, I would have to, as you pointed out, WikiLeaks and everything else is available. Yeah, well, that's that's my point. Is I I think, why would they waste their time? First off, they probably have better collection mechanisms than we do. They have they have the satellites. They've got the they're watching this whole planet every moment of the day. They don't need us telling them what mom and pop over or, or some airline pilot reported over, you know, California. I mean, they 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 know before we know. In my opinion, that's my personal opinion is they don't need our information to go do what they do. They might be interested in what we know. Uh, for purposes of, of do are we aware of these things? But but for what purpose? I mean, I think it's just it's gathering information. Well, I, think, wanna, well, yeah. I was going to say, I, it just looks at me uh, to me as if uh, you're infiltrating such an organization, you're going to get a redundancy of the information. And as you say, you publish everything you have. So a guy subscribing to the MUFON Journal or looking at the website, are your uh, are a lot of your files on on uh, computers on online type thing for for membership yeah, to look at? So yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there's really no point in it. Well, exactly. I mean, you know, that's uh, you know the, the the big thing many 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 years ago was this whole Bigelow flap, uh, which was basically an experiment to see if we we could fund a rapid. Re- rapid response teams if we could get better data by getting on site faster to where there might be a landing or a a close encounter of a craft. And um, honestly, uh, there's some thought, well, maybe this is being funded through the CIA. I'm thinking, well, if the CIA wants to pay us money to put our investigators on the ground faster and collect the information better so we can share it with all the world, I'll take their money. <laughs> I mean, it's silly. Well, the the other side of the coin is the Air Force would have had people to do that and had better facilities and a, probably a better response time than you guys could uh, come up with. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. They don't need us to do that. Exactly. I was just I was just suggesting that something that, that there's there's a paranoia in the UFO field, which I'm sure you're aware of, and that was kind of what oh, yeah. I was addressing here is that some of the people were suggesting that um, the information was so so unavailable to other people that uh, the government would have to resort to that sort of clandestine operation to gather the data. And I, I, from what I understand, you're saying, no, it's not true, that uh, there may be members of the intelligence community who are members of MUFON, but they're doing it as a personal interest as opposed to um, intelligence gathering operations. 
I, I think so. I, I mean, honestly, I think between NORAD and, and the NRO office and the, I mean, they, they know much more about what's going on around this planet than any of us. <laughs> Well, I was going to take time to off, uh, ask you about the skeptical side of the coin because of, of skeptics like Philip Class and that sort of thing, but we're actually out of time, so I won't do that. Uh, is the, the website, the MUFON website is uh, www.mufon.com? Yeah, MUFON.com, and I'd also encourage people to check out our symposium. We do a, com a conference every year. This year it's in Las Vegas, Nevada. Our, our, our theme is the case for a secret space program. We're going to be looking at the full genre of that, and uh, should be a great time, and I look forward to meeting everybody who wants to come up and uh, spend time with us in July of 2016. Well, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate you taking time to answer all my questions, uh, however they were phrased. And as I say, take a look at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. You'll get some more information about that, and I'll try to publish a link to this UFO case we were talking about. And we will return in 167 hours with another episode, and next week we're going to be talking to Monte Shriver about the Aztec UFO crash. So join us then.